begin, good morning. Glad to see you. And uh, that was Adam Radcliffe. He's our pastoral intern and hopefully soon to be next pastor here at Downtown Prez. And my name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here as well at Downtown Prez. We've been studying the book of Acts. This is the fifth book in the New Testament. It comes after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and before all the rest. So we're going to pick back up there in chapter 11. But before we dive into that, I want to just take a little point of personal privilege, if we can call it that, before I launch into the text and just just say this partly as a reminder and partly just to, to spur us on to continued ministry. This, this phrase that has really seems to have been around my whole time at Downtown Prez. I've been here for most of its life, not all of its life. There's several folks here this morning that predate me, but this phrase that I've heard throughout our young church's life is, let's strive not just to have church, but to be the church. And, you know, have church would just kind of be a traditional way, a, a southern way of saying have worship services, have, you know, d- do this, have, have church. And we do this every week, but we want to be the church. That's what we see in the New, the New Testament, is the body of Christ being the church. And I want to give you just one particular application about that. You know, it's been a teary week. Um, you, you, if you didn't know already and, or haven't seen the emails, you heard from Adam's prayers about the loss of a, of a baby to one of our families, uh, a whole lot of friends of that family in this church, and then the loss of a parent to Jonathan Bray and Jennifer Fant, and that affects a lot of folks in our church. Um, one way that we, be the tr- that we can be the church is to recognize something, and that is that American culture, I, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say, is historically and globally odd in the way that we handle grief. Because for almost all of history, across cultural lines, when there was death, it was understood that it takes a, a, a long time to grieve. And at the very least, a year to work through this entire cycle of first Christmas without, first Easter without, first summer without. It just at least that year to do the heavy lifting of, of grieving. And even then, you're not done. Um, but we, uh, the, just something about our cultural moment and American culture and also tech, I think, speeds this up, that we process so much information. There's not time to sit with something. You've got to see it move on. I just, I want to encourage you, whether it's these families or others that experience loss, that you continue to ask them how they're doing. Th- th- that we not interact with them as if, you know, come April, we're all good. They're not. And it doesn't mean that we can't talk about other things, but I just I want to encourage us to be the church by asking us those same sorts of questions in June and September and next January and just to walk alongside them over the long haul because there will be more loss and there'll be more death and there'll be more heartbreak. And we just we want to grow at that and, and be the church, okay? And then I, I know you will. Well, let's look at Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow there in the bulletin. I heard someone told me this about a word definition, and it it came to mind this past week, and I got online and looked at some dictionaries online, and apparently this 
checks out. It was, it was about the origin of the word pagan. Do you know where the word pagan comes from? Now, sometimes when churchy people say the word pagan, they mean an, an irreligious person or an unbelieving person or maybe an atheist that they're a pagan. But a pagan was a, re, a religious person. But the term comes from being a country person, being a, like a, a villager, rural person, small towner. And the origin of that word in some ways shows you a little bit about our own church history because as Christianity penetrated into the Roman Empire and pushed into it more and more and really set up shop in major urban areas where you found people who still practiced the old religions, folk religions or multiple deities, you didn't find those as much in the urban areas as you did in in the rural areas. And so... Not being a Christian was more identified with the country, the rural settings, being a town person. It's interesting that something like that is, is underfoot even in our own, in our own moment. And, and this is weird even for me to say it, and I feel like the old man talking about, you know, days of yore. But just even in my own lifetime, I'm not yet 50 years old. That sounded very old-fashioned. I am not yet 50 years old. I felt I should have been standing on a balcony when I said that, but... Uh, now, I haven't, I haven't made the age of 50 yet, but when, when I was young, growing up in Mississippi, very church, very Bible-beltish, you thought of churchy people just being in droves out in the small towns, droves out in the rural areas. And yeah, some church people in the city, in the larger town, but some not. That's where you're going to find the most, the most pushback on Christianity. And it's interesting that even that in our own time, even in states like South Carolina and Mississippi, is starting to change. Uh, in, increasingly, there's a drop-off of involvement in the church and identification with Jesus in rural areas. And yet, you do, now not across the board, but, but in major cities of the world and in major cities of the United States, you do find not just churches that are surviving but thriving and growing and engaging all kinds of aspects of the city's life. It's not always that way, but you're finding it more than you used to. So I think this is a fascinating passage because, I'm going to read it, this is the gospel coming to an area, and when it comes into this city, it's not just that, okay, yeah, and here's another town where the message about Jesus went. But this really is the transformation of an area where it becomes a new home base. Up until now in the book of Acts, Jerusalem is the home base, which is not surprising. That's where Jesus finished his ministry. That's where he commissioned the apostles. And so you'd expect things to radiate out from there. But now in this city, it's really going to be where Christianity becomes a, what we call a cross-cultural mission. Let's look at Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, as we are in a not massive city, but still an urban spot of our state and as part of the country. As we think about what's happening all over the world, the migration of people to cities, uh, we, we pray that you would open our eyes to what you did in another city, that this would strengthen our hearts, that it would give us courage, that it would give us civic courage. We pray that it would drive home to us how powerful the good news actually is, and that that would be good for our hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage that I just read, we began with these words, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. And I want to hit the pause button and just go back for just a second because not everybody has been here for this study. A few chapters back in chapter 8, there was an account of a martyrdom. And, and really, in church history, we regard this as the first great martyrdom. It was the death of one of the first deacons, a man named Stephen. He was stoned to death because of his witness for Jesus Christ. And in that account, right after he's killed, here's what Luke writes. Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and of Acts. And he wrote this. There arose on that day, the day of that martyrdom, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And he adds this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So something that was supposed to happen earlier, namely Christians spreading out and telling other people about this, wasn't happening. And in God's economy, when this, when this martyrdom happens... A persecution breaks out, and even though it was a not fun way to experience this, just it spread the Christians out. Apostles remained in Jerusalem, but these other believers moved out, and as they went into these different areas where Jesus had told them to go, they talked to people about Jesus, and lo and behold, what happened? More people became Christians. But there's this further out area where that's not happening. And that's where you pick up in chapter 11. It says, uh, Luke writes, Those who were scattered because of the persecution, way back in chapter 8, that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia in Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. There, there are Jews all over the world. That goes back to what's called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews uh, in uh, um, where God moved them out of Judea, out of Palestine, and into different parts of the world. And that's why you have synagogues in all these cities all over the world in the first century. And by the way, that's important because when Christians went into a new city to spread the gospel, they didn't just go to the busiest street corner and set up a placard that says, repent and believe. They'd go to the synagogue 
to people that grew up with the Torah and grew up with the prophets and say, hey, you already anticipate the Messiah. We want to tell you that he has come and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. So they would start there. So that's what these people did. There were 25,000 plus Jews living in Antioch. So some of the people that went to Antioch, they told them, they went to the synagogue and told them about Jesus. But then there were some, I mean, it's almost like these stories that you hear about where somebody in college or grad school, some professor gave them a math problem that's impossible to solve and didn't tell them that it was impossible to solve. And because no one told them that, they solved it. It's almost like there were some other Christians who go into Antioch and no one told them only talk to Jews. So they just talked to anybody. And lo and behold, God worked. And he worked in a significant city of the first century. So I want to think about this. This is an opportunity for us to think about the urbanization of our world right now. Again, I'm, I, I know that we're not in Manhattan. I know like Greenville loves to talk about urban this and urban that. Like, can we all say we're not Beijing? We're kind of a large, tasteful Mayberry with taller buildings. But <laughs> there is no, there, well, I, I stop while I'm ahead. All that to say. But for the upstate, with all due respect to Spartanburg, this is the major city of the upstate. And, and we, as, a, as a downtown church, for our smaller downtown, we do think about we are here for this city and the world is moving to cities. This is a chance for us to stop and think about that biblically. So here's how I'd like to break this down. First, the intimidating city, then the strategic city, and the human city. Okay, the intimidating city the strategic city, the human city. First off, if this passage is going to make much sense, it it mentions several cities, but the the one where things really happen is in the city of Antioch. I don't know what you know about Antioch. If you've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, of course, that it was the original site of the Holy Hand Grenade. You probably need to know more than that about Antioch as we look into this passage. Uh, For real, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And, and I want you to know the scale of this thing because you get these names that you're not familiar with in the Bible, Antioch, and think, okay, I guess it's like a town like, I don't know, Bethlehem, and I don't know how many people lived in Bethlehem. I don't know, whatever. Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, at least 500,000 people, maybe upwards of 800,000 people. So think about in the first century, it was already larger than Greater Greenville, But think about this. Steel has not been crafted yet. So you can't build up maybe three stories, maybe three or four. But dense, packed, but beautiful. Uh, I've already said there were 25,000, maybe 50,000 Jews living in Antioch. But over half a million people. Big urban area. Affluent. Uh, historical records of an aqueduct and public baths. Now, we might kind of go, ugh, public baths, but that would be sort of a luxurious upper-end kind of amenity for a city. Temples, theaters. There was a place there that was something like a basilica for the Roman Caesar. Just kind of palatial structure. Beautiful river there. The city was laid out very intentionally in a grid-like pattern to maximize the effects of the sea breezes. I mean, just like an amazing urban, art-filled area. 
Some folks said that they thought in its scale and in its beauty that it surpassed Rome. And it was called the Queen of the East. Lots of money, lots of cool stuff going on, major trade routes. That leads to the other thing, super multi-ethnic. We've already said you've got a Jewish population there. You've got a Greek population there. You've got other Eastern populations there. You've got Gentiles. You've got Romans. Um, think about this. I don't, know if, I don't know if this has ever popped in your mind, but you know, we, we think about the different people groups that make up huge chunks of the global population. Ones that we would call Asian. Like, think in terms of the Chinese. Have you ever wondered, where are they in the Bible? Big-time trade routes through Antioch to and from China. So to walk the streets of Antioch would feel like walking through London or Seattle or San Francisco. Just all kinds of people there. This is where the money is. This is where beauty is. This is where cultural richness is. This is where opportunities are. I, you know, I was thinking about when, a, when, when I have felt like going into a city that, wow, this is sort of a daunting place. The, uh, the one and only time I've ever been to Paris, France, and I'm not embellishing this to make it a better sermon illustration. This is really how it happened. I, just first time in the historic part of the city, and I was walking across one of those footbridges across the Seine River, and I saw a woman who just literally looked like a Parisian woman out of a magazine in heels, young model-looking woman, walking a poodle with a leash, with the sparkly collar in her high heels. And it was kind of that feeling of, okay, there really are humans like that in the world. I thought they were all made up, but they really do. They really do exist. And you picture, I, I didn't do this, I was traveling alone, but you, know, you picture like an individual walking up to her and saying, because Paris is wildly unchurched. There are historic churches all through there, but... France isn't just, some people would say it's not just post-Christian, it's really more like pre-Christian. It's really like an un, utterly unreached area with church buildings. Picture walking up to that woman with all that architectural richness, all the food she has access to, all the art and beauty and financial opportunities and, and cultural richness, saying, listen, I, I'd like to tell you the good news about somebody who has taken care of everything that you need as somebody who disobeys God and is going to die, somebody who can wash your sins away and raise you from the dead and, and bring you to live with God forever. Which seems so intimidating. Because you think about, like, she has all this. Why would she listen to Hayseed you? That has to be something of what it was like to be a Christian with this message of this man that people here have not heard about unless they're involved in trade that takes them through Jerusalem. To walk in there to people with all, you know, to a place that some people said surpassed Rome and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. It was intimidating. And here's the reality. I, intimidating cities are growing and becoming more intimidating all over the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to just pound you with stats here. But let me read you a couple. This is from a book called Why Cities Matter. You've heard some of these kinds of statistics. In 1900, only 14% of the world's population lived in urban areas. That number had grown to 30% by 1950. In 2008, the world's population was evenly split 
between urban and rural areas. But in 2011, the world became predominantly urban. The numbers are even more striking in developed areas where, on average, 74% of the population lives in urban areas. A couple more. The United Nations Population Division's massive study on world population prospects suggests that by 2050, the world will be 68.7% urban. Amazingly, by mid-century, the world urban population will likely be the same size as the world's total population was in 2004. Now let that wash over you, that maybe by the middle of this century, which is closer than it used to be, the number of people that were on the whole earth anywhere in 2004, that's how many people will live in cities. Our world is urbanizing. Not new, uh, not new news, but here's what it means for us. If we love Jesus and we want him to be known, and that's the driving story of the book of Acts, that this is good, this is good news for the world. For us, it means, again, we're going to have to think about cities. It doesn't mean let's give the rural areas the shaft, but we've got to think about people are making our big cities even bigger. They're flocking there and starting new ones. Second thing, the strategic city. I've already said they can be intimidating. The bigger, the more unreached, the richer they are, the more intimidating they can be, but, but they're strategic. Look back at verse 21. You've got these people that apparently no one told them, don't talk to Gentiles, just talk to people that have grown up in the synagogue, and they just told anybody about Jesus, and people believed in Antioch. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's a, that's a beautiful expression of repentance. That it, it wasn't just, okay, yeah, it's good to have another God in your pantheon. Sure, I believe in Jesus. They believed and they turned from what they knew, turned from what they were proud of about themselves, and they turned to him and said, have mercy on me. Verse 22 what does is, what is the home base do? What does the home office do? Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. In other words, when news got back to Jerusalem that this was happening, it, the response wasn't, huh, that's great, another town where we're telling people about Jesus. There was a sense of, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. If, if people without a biblical background, people that didn't grow up hearing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're believing in Jesus? Let's go check this out. So they send Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to check it out. It's like, think about the Frank Sinatra song about New York. I mean, every line of that song is famous, but one of the most famous lines is, if I can make it here, I'll make it anywhere. And people still feel that way about New York and major cities, that if this, if this idea will work here, if this product will work here, if my performance will fly here, if this platform gets traction here, then yeah, I might have to tweak it in this country or that city, but it'll work anywhere. The Jerusalem church understood if people with no biblical background We've seen Gentiles become Christians, but people with no synagogue in their background, and they've got 
every urban reason to have other options and things to keep them busy besides believing in Jesus. If they're believing in Jesus, let's go look at this. And Barnabas comes down and looks around and says, this is real. People who have, from the world's perspective, everything going for them, they are bowing the knee to Jesus and following him. And it's no, look in verse 26, the second part of verse 26. It's, it's not a coincidence. It says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Because here's what you had. You immediately had a multi-ethnic church with different socioeconomic backgrounds. And if you look in chapter 13 of Acts, the first verse lists the leadership of the church in Antioch. And you can tell just from the names that it's multi-ethnic. And they have different backgrounds. And when other people in Antioch saw this, and they wanted a word to describe these people, and it was probably a term of derision. It's probably a, a not nice nickname. The only thread that tied these different various people together, different races, different levels of money, different backgrounds, was just that they're, just, they're Christ people. That's all you can say. They don't watch the same news outlets. They don't shop at the same places. Very different backgrounds. They're Christ people. That started in Antioch. And think about this. <clears throat> look, at the, look at the latter part of that passage. There's this, and I know this is, it, it's, an, it's an odd passage. It says that this prophet comes down from Jerusalem named Agabus, and he says, he tells a future event. There's going to be a famine all over the world, and it's going to radically affect people in Judea. It's going to radically affect the home church in Jerusalem. So it says this in verse 29, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. This is so beautiful. It's already talking about people in Antioch. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. But in other words... They really changed. And one of the amazing things about when the gospel penetrates into a city is that these resources you have there of artists and thinkers and innovators and people who know how to execute, people who know how to get stuff done and connect the right people, when the gospel touches their lives and they bring those kind of sensibilities to kingdom work, things get done. That's not to say country people can't get things done, but it's beautiful when those urban things that make a city great are harnessed to do the work of the kingdom. And I, this word has never jumped out at me like, it did when, uh, like when I read it over the past week, is that it says they take their money, affluent city, stuff going on, investors, all that. They take their money and they send it to the brothers in Judea. They've never met them. But they're brothers now. You know, I thought even about our own church's life. When we find out about, here's some Christians that we've never met. And maybe they are trying to start a church. Maybe in a strategic part of our world right now. Maybe they're trying to start a church that preaches the gospel in Tokyo. Or in Zurich. Some place with sort of disproportionate influence in our world. It may be that we don't know them. We don't know the challenges they're going to face. And we may never meet them this side of heaven. 
But we, even as a micro city compared to those, when we take resources that God has raised up for us in our city and send it to them as brothers and sisters, that's one of the things that makes a a city strategic is when the special factors that make a city a city are now harnessed to do the work of the kingdom as well as bless that city. Reaching Antioch was not just another feather in the cap of Christianity. It was strategic for the spread of the gospel and of outreach. Where did that come from? You know, I said it's strategic. What was the strategy? What was the special strategy that reached this world-class city? And I, I hope this will encourage you because this is where at the end of the day you've got you've to get up over it and go, great architecture, great art, multi-ethnic, tons of trade, tons of money going through here. A lot of pretty people. It's wildly known for immorality. Temples, cultural richness, blah, blah, blah. Theaters. It's got it all going on. At the end of the day, who lives in Antioch? People live in Antioch. What gets through to people? Rural or urban? Look in verse 20 again. Here's those people that didn't know, (laughs) didn't know better. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. That's all it says. They just came in and they preached the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting, when Luke writes about the gospel being communicated to Jewish audiences, he'll talk about Jesus being preached as Christ, the Messiah. Because that term would make sense to a Jewish audience. It wouldn't make sense to a Gentile audience that didn't grow up with that stuff. But you know what they did grow up with? The word in a Greek-speaking area, kurios, Lord. And what had been pounded into their heads in the Roman Empire was kaiseros kurios. Caesar is Lord. And this group of people, not PhDs, Christian people came into the daunting city of Antioch and they told people, Iesus Curios, Jesus is Lord. And here, uh, let me tell you why that is good news for you. People, it reached people. Look at the language of uh, verse 23. It's talking about Barnabas. It says, when he, he sent from Jerusalem, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And let me get teachy for a second. The verb that's trans, the Greek verb that's translated exhorted there is just, it's, it's hard to translate. I bet four different tra- English translations have four different words there. The, it's the Greek verb parakaleo. Hard to translate, but in noun form, it's a term that's used of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. It's a combination of ministering strong truth to someone, but doing it as you come alongside that person. So it's not like, I'm just going to come here and sort of truth you and then leave you to process it, but to come with strong truth, but walk alongside you. Minister to you, but be with you in love. 
And it, uh, th- this image of this guy Barnabas, who's not like, he hasn't been trained in seminary and urban outreach. He just goes there as somebody who loves Jesus, and he would come alongside people. And apparently he was a very encouraging man. His, his name means son of consolation, son of comfort. He comes alongside these new urban Christians and was able to, you know, like, picture if you've got a guy that grew up and he had solicited temple prostitutes his whole life, as would be very easy in the city of Antioch. And now he believes in Jesus. And first there's joy, and then there's heartbreak about the life he's lived. And Barnabas could come alongside that guy and say, Hey, look, let me tell you something. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. And Jesus has washed away all your idols, all your sin, all your uncleanness, and mine too. And he fills us with his Holy Spirit, and he will change us. And his gospel is going to spread in the city, and we're going to watch him do it, right? And it impacted people. And and this is great too. Look in verse 25, excuse me, 26. Barnabas goes looking for Saul, i.e. Paul, to bring him in on this. And it says in verse 26 that when Barnabas found him, found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. What was the cool, cutting-edge, cosmopolitan, city-center, urban outreach strategy? Preach Jesus, meet with people, invest in people. Love them, give them truth, walk alongside them, keep teaching them God's Word. I hope that encourages you. Uh, Again, I know we're not Beijing. I know we're not London. But even things in our small city, in fact, we would be considered a micro city by people that study this kind of thing. Even in our micro city... There are people that are daunting here. There are people that are intimidating here. And, and what, I want to, what I want the Lord to push on in us through his word this morning is, have you already in your mind sort of put some people in the category of, you know what, they got a great life here. They're making money. There's fun stuff to do. The thought of sitting in something like this instead of going to brunch, they would rather die. They're sure not going to read a Bible. They're sure not going to pray. They're sure not going to come to a Bible study. And they sure don't want to hear me talk to them about Jesus. Have you already decided in your mind that there's just this huge swath of people in our city and they just can't be reached and maybe we can get through to the people who are already moral and cute and like us back? The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of of everyone who believes. Because after it went to Antioch, guess where else it went? It went to Rome. It went to New York. It went to the greatest city in the world and landed. It has landed some here, but man, it needs to land more. Here's the image I want you to think of or the truth to have in, in our hearts. Um, I, a city in our, I mean, a, a church in our denomination, and really now a network of churches in our denomination that has 
made its presence known in New York City is Redeemer Presbyterian that was originally planted by Tim Keller in the late 80s and now is just a, a host of churches. And we've had church members join here from those churches. There's some videos on the Redeemer Pres website that are called Stories of Renewal. And it's just, it'll be one person talking to the camera about God bursting into his or her life. And I watched one this weekend. It's really great because when you think about New York, kind of your mind can go to like, it's like the whole city is full of nothing but investment bankers. There are actually some other people there, it turns out. In fact, most people are not investment bankers in New York. And so this is a guy and uh, it just interviews him in his little teeny one person apartment in New York City. And he said, you know, I, I, I used to be the life of the party. And at some point, I began to realize that I was watching the party. And I was working at Verizon. He doesn't say if he was retail or admin or what, but I was working at Verizon and I would come home and I would just ball up on the couch and the walls were closing in. And it's all I could do to just kind of get through the night so that I could get up the next morning and go back to work and do it again. He was depressed. And through the ministry of Redeemer Presbyterian, he was brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as he's sitting there in this little New York apartment talking about his life, he, he, in talking about his experience, he quoted a verse. Actually, when Adam and I were praying this morning, he prayed this verse in his prayer. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. And when this man quoted that verse, his voice cracked because of the emotion of having experienced that so acutely. And what I love about that is that th- that is a picture that is so like God. You know, the, the, at the end of the book of Jonah, you've got a picture of this prophet named Jonah, and he was sent to this big old urban wicked city, Nineveh. And he was supposed to tell him, change or else. And so he says his two bits, and then he goes up to look at the city to, like, watch God send in the thermonuclear strike because he thinks they're not going to change. And they changed. And it hacked him off because he wanted to watch the nuclear explosion of this wicked city that deserved it. This microphone is also wicked, but I'm trying to (laughs) subdue it. Okay. So he's going to watch the thermonuclear strike. God doesn't send it because the city repents, and it makes him so mad And God comes to him. This is at the end of the book of Jonah. And he says, should you be angry? Should I not be concerned for that great city? It's just so lovely. In fact, he even says, I'm even concerned about, he says, I'm concerned about the men and women in that city who don't know their right from their left. I'm even concerned about the animals in that city. Just the heart of God to look at this big area and say, hey, Jonah, Do not sit there in your self-righteousness. I am concerned about the people in that city. They matter. And here's this man. He's, you know, he's not a politician. He's not a big, doesn't work at some big financial center. You could live your whole life and never hear about him. And he's sitting in his apartment and he's so beat down. And God cares about him. Does God care about the small towns? You better believe he does. Beautiful things come from small towns. God cares about the country and the rural areas. But man, God cares about big, 
intimidating, daunting cities. And you know what? The bigger they are, the harder they fall. For small towns or for city centers, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for we who are easily intimidated, when we shouldn't be, but we are, would you even use these words to fill our hearts with courage? Lord, not for us to try to do something big and splashy to get attention, but could it manifest itself in lunch with a friend or more intentional prayer for a friend? prayer for a co-worker, an invitation to a Bible study or to worship? Would you work in our hearts so that we cry out, that we don't just default as a church to serving our own needs, but we as a church be a manifestation of the fact that you love Greenville, not on her merit, but you love men and women made in your image. Make us your hands and feet in our city, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.